If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to me, uh, turn with me to a book that you probably very seldom ever uh, turn to. Uh, it's the book of Second John. Second uh, John. If you're curious about where that might be in um, the New Testament, if you go to the book of Revelation, go to the last book of the Bible, and turn just a couple pages to the left, uh, you'll find the little letter of Second John. And interestingly enough, it's between First John and Third John. Uh, for for further clarification. But 2 John and 3 John uh, really are the two shortest letters of the New Testament. Uh, And over the next few weeks, I want to just sort of dive into these two little letters uh, in a brief series that I've just simply entitled, Hold Fast, and the importance of truth, especially as it relates to a culture in which we now find ourselves that denies absolutes, Uh, sort of the idea that truth is relative or truth is whatever a person wants it to be. Now, many of you will remember this from the news way back when. Uh, If you go back about 30 years or so, um, I believe it was October of 1992, there was a very well-known yachtsman by the name of Michael Plant who set out on a solo crossing of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, It was his intention to make it all the way from the United States to France. But roughly two weeks into his voyage, something went terribly wrong, and he was lost at sea. Now, when Michael Plant had uh, prepared to sail, friends and family all gathered at New York Harbor at the dock for an enthusiastic farewell, and they had no reason for anxiety. Uh, They were speaking their goodbyes to a seasoned veteran of the seas, an expert sailor, uh, someone who had already circumnavigated the globe more than one time. And so the sailing community, they all universally acknowledged Michael Plant to be a yachtsman whose seafaring skills were without equal. Now his destination had been a little town on the western coast of France, And his sailing vessel was called the Coyote, and it was state-of-the-art from its design to the materials used in its fabrication, as well as every other component of his equipment that was on board. In addition to all of that, uh, he had recently purchased a brand-new emergency positioning uh, radio beacon, And, and this tool was capable of transmitting a signal by way of satellite in the event of emergency. And so all of that considered, when Michael Plant unfurled his sails for uh, Europe, he had everything going in his favor, from the best of equipment and expertise and experience, all of that was on his side, which is why nobody really thought that anything could go wrong. But something did, in fact, go wrong, because 11 days into his trip, all contact with Michael Plant was lost. Now, initially, that was really no call for alarm. It was known that there were storms along the route, and so everybody merely assumed that he perhaps was busy, preoccupied with the weather, uh, rather than establishing contact with his home base. You add to that the fact that nobody else really reported any distress, distress signals, and so all of that you know, basically led to this idea that no news was good news. 
But whenever that radio silence persisted for several days, confidence gave way to a great sense of unease. And so there came an unwanted moment when those who were decision makers had to determine that something has gone terribly wrong, and so a rescue team and search was launched. Airline pilots that were crossing the ocean were asked to listen for any emergency signals. Days passed, and finally, the news came that no one had expected. The coyote was found, but it was found floating upside down, and there was no sign of Michael Plant. Now, those in the sailing world, if you're familiar, familiar with that type of sailing, this would have been a really a surprise to hear because the sailing vessels that Michael Plant was used to uh, uh, traversing in, traveling in, these weren't really prone to capsize. It was highly unusual because they're built to take the most intense pounding that the sea can offer. But you see, in order for a sailboat to maintain a steady course and not capsize, it's got to harness the power of the wind, but there also has to be enough weight below the waterline more weight below the waterline than there is above the waterline. This is known as ballast. And so any violation of this principle of weight distribution would spell disaster. Now, nobody knows why, but the 8,000-pound weight that was beneath the coyote somehow had become unattached or detached from the hull of the ship and broke away from the keel. And when that happened, the boat's stability was severely compromised so that any wind or any wave of any magnitude would become its death blow. Now, that's a fitting illustration of my life and your life in this world as the followers of Jesus Christ. Because it's a fact of our times that we're living against a strong cultural headwind The church now faces a headwind in our culture that perhaps we've not necessarily experienced as much or as strongly in times past. Uh, There was a brief window of time in the past where perhaps the, the church had the wind of culture at its back. Maybe we had what we could call the home field advantage, but you know that that's certainly not the case anymore because it's obvious that the winds of culture, the winds of change have come The waves are growing more tempestuous, and if there is no counterweight to our vessel, we face the very real threat of capsizing. And so we need the ballast of truth. There needs to be more weight below the waterline of my life and your life than merely the superficial surface stuff that oftentimes we think is more important than anything else. The church desperately needs the counterweight of truth. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. That's why she's in the world. Uh, The Lord Jesus has left us in the world as believers to bear witness to the truth of who he is. We've been given the truth. The writer of Hebrews says that God's truth is our sure and steady anchor. And so this is really the message of these tiny little letters toward the end of our New Testament, 2 John, 3 John, and even the book of Jude. 
And so it's this message of 2 John to which I want us to turn our attention this morning as we begin this brief study. I've just simply given it the title, Hold Fast. Now, 2 John really consists of only about 300 words in the original language. But the emphasis here in this passage of Scripture is, is that of truth and holding on to truth within the expression of love all in the covenant community of faith. It's clear that the Apostle John desires for his children in the faith to remain steadfast in their devotion to the truth. In fact, you'll notice that truth is a word that he uses several times in these two little letters. Uh, it's the Greek word aletheia, and it's a word that's used roughly 109 times in the New Testament, most of which it's found in the writings of John, both his gospel as well as uh, his, his epistles, his letters. But that Greek word aletheia, it's a, it's a word translated truth, defines truth as being that which corresponds with reality. It's what's real. And by the way, we're encountering different definitions and different ideas of what's real and what's not real in today's culture, aren't we? This idea where people say, well, truth is whatever you make of it. You speak your truth, and I'll speak my truth, and you live your truth, and I'll live my truth, and what's real for you is maybe different than what's real for me, and now we've got so many that just seem to be confused over such basic issues to our humanity. And so John is very clear in his message here that truth is definable. It's objective. It's concrete. It's grounded in reality. It's grounded in the person and character of God himself. So you're there in 2 John. You'll notice that there's only one chapter. So we only have 13 verses here and no chapter divisions. And so I want to limit my my comments really to the first couple of verses, but I want to read the entire letter just so that you understand what it is that John is saying here in this tiny postcard. Verse 1, John says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace Mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. So notice he's already said, used that word truth at least four times in just these first three verses. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So notice, notice John is clear here when he says that 
that a person who has genuine faith in Christ, the one who abides in the body of doctrine that we've received, who walks in the truth, this is evidence that a person has truly come to know the Lord. Whoever doesn't abide in that doctrine, whoever denies that truth, regardless of what they say, they don't know the Lord. That's really what John is saying there. Now listen to this, verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Now, I want to limit my comments to just the first couple of verses of this little letter, and I want to speak from this subject, the ballast of truth. The ballast of truth and how critical, how important it is uh, for the vessel of my life to be balanced with ballast because the waters of culture, I'm telling you folks, they're getting more turbulent by the day. And we'd better know what we believe as the church and why we believe it. Now, it, it may be hard for us to imagine why this is so controversial for our times. But for us to say that truth is something that's definable, something that's objective, something that's outside of the individual, this is indeed countercultural. And it's not in step with the relativistic thinking which now marks our time, which is basically the notion that says truth is relative to the individual. It's this idea that all truth claims are equally valid. Now, those who would make those kinds of arguments, they're going to be uncomfortable with the message of this little letter. Because John is, <clears throat> excuse me, John is clear here in the assertion that truth is not what a person wants it to be. Instead, it's something that's defined. It's something that's knowable. It's something that's rooted in the character of God himself. And so again, this goes against so much of the pop culture and so much of the popular opinions that we hear in our time. The spirit of the age, which sort of makes man out to be the measure of all things. No, in times such as these, we as disciples must hold fast to the truth of the gospel, truth which has been made incarnate in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, a truth that's now been left to us in this inspired record, the word of Almighty God. Now, this morning, I want us to just kind of uh, just make three simple primary considerations from just these first couple of verses in this little letter. And the first thing I want you to see is this. Notice with me the inspired authorship of the letter. We need to consider just who it is that's writing here. Now, I've already said that it was John who's writing this, this little letter, but you need to know that down through the years, uh, that has traditionally been accepted as the case, but in recent times, more liberal scholars want to strike at that notion. But it's clear that it's the Apostle John who writes. His writing style is very much similar to that which we've already seen. If you remember last year, we spent quite a bit of time going through the five chapters of 1 John. And so here he echoes many of his very same themes that he has mentioned in that previous letter. 
But by the time that John writes his letters, it's most likely that he's spent more years, he's got more years behind him than he actually has months ahead of him. He's around 90 years of age at this point in his life. So suffice it to say that it's not off base for him to call to himself as the elder, as he does in verse one. And the word that's used there is the word presbyteros. It's the same word we get the word Presbyterian from. Uh, Presbyteros, elder, this is associated with a spiritual leader in the local congregation of the church. It's often, often used as um, a description of an individual in what stage of life, stage of maturity that he is in. And so the fact that he is an elder both in terms of his age and in terms of the position that he has as a pastor. These are not mutually exclusive but this is John just speaking from a seasoned pastoral heart. And despite his age, it might seem remarkable for us to, to consider how in touch he was with his times. When in fact, I would say it's because of his age that he saw more clearly than ever. Here's a man who's been around. Here's a man who's walked with the Lord Jesus for many, many years. Here's someone who's been an apostle and an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And after decades of close intimacy with the Lord, he's nearing the end of his journey, and he writes with just this clarity of perspective and, and singleness of purpose, where he's really encouraging his readers to be faithful as it relates to their walk in the truth. Now, I don't know about you, but there's just something about an older, seasoned veteran in the faith who can speak into my life with a sense of wisdom and authentic experience. Uh, we should welcome that. Uh, if you're young, you greatly need those men and women of faith, uh, those godly saints in your life. Uh, I thought about just how true this is just this past week with the passing of Dr. Charles Stanley. Uh, only eternity will really reveal the ways in which he was used of God to enrich the lives of other people through just his simple ministry of preaching and teaching the Bible. But the fact remains, when the elder speaks, it begs that you and I listen to what he has to say. And so John, as an elder in the faith, he's speaking with with uh, authenticity, uh, experience, with tenderness, with keen insight, not to mention the fact he writes with apostolic authority. And many of the things that he emphasizes in these 13 verses, again, he's already emphasized so much of this uh, in his, his first epistle. In fact, this language, antichrist, this comes from the writings of the apostle John. Uh, in 1 John, John describes the spirit of Antichrist that will be true in the last days. And he says that uh, Antichrist is coming, but many have already come. What is he talking about? He's talking about those who've denied the basic truth of the gospel. Uh, not only those who would set themselves up in opposition to Christ, but also those who would stand in the way of Christ and introduce any other teaching or body of of, of ideas that are contrary to the gospel of Christ, a denial of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. John says this is antichrist and anti-Christian doctrine. 
And so at the end of the first century, you've already got some of these ideas that were being introduced into the churches because the evil one in every generation, he always seeks to muddy the waters as it, comes, as it relates to truth. He always wants to subvert the truth. He always wants to dilute the truth. He always wants to deceive men and women into believing lies. And there is no lie which is so dangerous as that which most closely resembles the truth. And Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Don't think that when Antichrist shows up and steps onto the scene that he's always going to have horns and a pitchfork. <laughs> no, oftentimes he's just simply going to speak those very words that people want to hear because they've got itching ears and people in the last days are going to heap up teachers for themselves having itching ears who will just tell them whatever it is that they want to hear so as to be popular and to not rock the boat. So John just begins this little letter in a straightforward way. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And so he jumps to the issue here. And, and essentially he answers for us this question, what is Christianity? You know, if you were to ask any random person on the street that question, you'd probably get just sort of a plethora of answers. And some would say, well, Christianity is a religion. And others would say, well, Christianity is a set of ethical principles by which you and I live. You probably would find someone who would say, well, Christianity is a tool of oppression used to exploit and oppress the poor. And then if you were to ask a follow-up question and say, well, who is Jesus Christ? You'd, you'd, you'd again, you'd run the gamut with a variety of answers. Some would say, well, he was a good teacher, a good man. Some might even dare to say that he was a mythical figure and deny all history. But folks, lest we assume that we understand uh, and that our culture understands what Christianity is, the Apostle John makes it clear for us when he simply says the truth. Whom I love in the truth. John says that, that Christianity is the truth. Not simply a truth among many truths, which are all equally valid. No, John, having an understanding of what Jesus himself said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So John writes here to clear up any confusion that may abound in the minds of some. So that's the inspired authorship of the letter. Now notice the second thing. What about the intended recipient of the letter? Because notice he says, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth. Now again, I don't want to belabor the point here, but Bible scholars have generally shaken out into two different camps uh, regarding the recipient of this tiny letter. Who exactly is it that John is referring to when he addresses the elect lady? Elect, this is electos, the Greek word that's used there. Uh, Korea, lady. And so some commentators have understood the Greek language here uh, as, as being a proper name, maybe lady eclecta. That word translated lady, this itself could be a proper name. It's interesting, Chuck Swindoll points this out, that in Aramaic, the Aramaic equivalent of Curia, which is translated lady, 
The Aramaic equivalent of that is Martha. So could it possibly be that John was writing a letter to the same Martha, the sister of Mary and Lazarus mentioned in the Gospel of John? Could the chosen sister uh, who, or elect sister, verse 13, that's referenced there, could that be a reference to Martha's sister, Mary? Now, that may be an interesting thought, but it's nothing more than speculation. There's, there's no proof of that. Others have held to the view that John is using metaphor here to really describe the church. And so he's writing to a local congregation. He's doing the same thing that Peter does in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, where he says, she who is in Babylon, who likewise who is chosen, sends you greetings. And there Peter's referring to the church in Rome, which he, he compares as being Babylon, she who is in Babylon. This is the church in Rome that Peter's referring to. So is John doing the same thing here, using metaphoric language that refers to a wider audience such as a local congregation. Now, now that you're bored with all of those details, uh, I hold the view that John is addressing a local church here and that he's using metaphor. And the language that he uses here, I think to me this is a real key indicator of this because he says there in verse one to the lady whom I love in truth. Or in verse 5, he says, and I ask you, dear lady, that we love one another. Now, I don't know about you, but there's only one lady that I'm comfortable using such language with, and she ain't in this service, but she'll be in the orchestra playing the French horn, and she'll be in the 11 a.m. service. My wife. So the language lends itself to that of, that of a seasoned pastor who's writing to his flock. It's a letter of deep pastoral concern. And I think something else in favor of this view is the fact that John kind of goes back and forth in his use of both second-person singular and second-person plural pronouns. Now, we know from history that he has pastoral oversight of at least one congregation in the region near Ephesus. We know that John had been the pastor of the church in Ephesus, so it's his desire here to see his spiritual children face to face, but now in the form of this letter, by means of pen and ink, he's expressing his love and his deep concern for those who were under his pastoral care. And so he's simply writing believers, he's encouraging them for the way that their beliefs were being reflected through the way that they were, they were living their life there was no disconnect in their Christian experience. They weren't saying one thing and then living a different way. You might could say that the tongue in their mouth and the tongue in their shoe were both traveling in the same direction. And how true it is. Which, by the way, we need to remind ourselves of that. People not want to listen or want to listen to the truth that you claim to know and have experienced. They're looking at the way you live your life. And if the truth that you claim to believe has not led to a major transformation of your life, then why would someone else want to believe what you claim to believe? So John says that a Christian knows the truth, a Christian loves the truth, and, and, and that's made authentic in that person's life through their participation in the local church. They know the truth, and they love those who love the truth and they're in fellowship with one another. And again, that's a key theme in 1 John. 
So there's no disconnect in what these believers claim to believe when compared to the way that they live their life. Now, this is an important thing for you and me to really understand because we live in a day where love has been so redefined to mean whatever a person may want it to mean. The Bible is clear in that uh, God is the one who defines love and gives it its proper shape. Love is rooted in the character of God. And so truth and love, these go hand in hand. Again, Dr. Swindoll, listen to what he writes. In many ways, love is like a mighty river. Love flows with life-giving power, but without boundaries, it can do great harm. And this may sound strange at first, but it's true. In the name of loving sinners, we can go too far to the point that we tolerate accept, justify, and in recent years, even applaud sin. This kind of love calmly sets others adrift in dangerous waters rather than moving them from death to life. So truth then serves as the guardrails of real love. That's not to say we don't love those with whom we disagree, but the thing is, our love for truth compels us because we love others to speak the truth in love. And so truth and discernment, these, these are like two important riverbanks that keep love, that safely keep love within its boundaries. You might could say that love without the truth is sentimentalism. And truth without love is judgmentalism. And we want to avoid both of those extremes, don't we? And so it's important for us to keep all of this within its proper balance. And, and John helps us do that. So the inspired authorship of the letter, the intended recipient of the letter, and then notice third, the important message of the letter. What is it that John really is writing all about? Well, the truth. He says, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Now listen to this. Aren't you grateful for that as a child of God? Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. That's a statement of fact. It's not simply a statement of possibility, but because of the truth of Jesus and what Jesus Christ has done. You've come to believe the truth. You've come to believe the gospel. Think about this. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. No matter what the culture throws at us, no matter what the enemy of our faith, Satan tries to do to try to break up the road and oppose us and attack us from all sides. No, listen, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. You know what grace is, don't you? It's, it's the unmerited favor of God. Simple way of understanding grace is, is God giving you what you don't deserve. Is God giving you what you don't deserve? Well, I'll tell you what, he sure has in my life given me what I don't deserve. Mercy, what's mercy? Well, mercy is, is God not giving me what I do deserve. What do I really deserve because of my sin and breaking the commandments of God? I deserve death according to what the demands of the law require. The wages of sin is death. 
But you see, I've received mercy in Jesus Christ. God's, God's not given me what I do deserve. No, instead, he gave that to Jesus on the cross who died in my place so that now I can receive grace in Jesus Christ. God giving me what I don't deserve. That's forgiveness. It's eternal life. And so the experience of both grace and mercy, this results in peace. What's peace? Well, the peace that John is describing here, it's not simply the absence of conflict like most of us tend to believe. He's referring to the peace that we now experience having been made right with God. Because to be a believer in Jesus Christ, one who's experienced grace and mercy at the cross, you've been reconciled through the atoning death and resurrection, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, so that now you and I are at peace with God. And the world needs peace, doesn't it? And we have politicians all the time who come along and say, well, Here's how you can have peace, and here's how conflict can be solved, and here's how we can have this answer to really just solve this dilemma in our culture, when in reality, the deepest issue of our times has always been the deepest issue of humanity. It's that humanity is alienated from God and desperately needs to be reconciled and made right with a holy God, and only Jesus and the truth of Jesus does that in a person's life. And so you have these shootings and things that happen that seem to happen so frequently now where some deranged gunman goes into a school or goes into a church or goes into a, a shopping mall or wherever out of their own frustrated sense of life and torment turn the gun on others that they don't even know. And we wonder why would a person ever do something like that? Folks, can I tell you? It's because... People need peace with God. And there's no amount of gender ideology that's going to give them that peace. There's no amount of technological advancement that's going to give them that peace. There's no amount of, of economic prosperity that's going to give them that peace. No, listen, the only way that peace comes to a person's heart and life is if they bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He alone is the pathway to peace. And that's what John wants us to know about. Now, we'll not get into this, but later on, down in verse number seven, uh, he says that, that there was a real threat that the church was facing from those who were deceivers who had gone out into the world. And they were trying to confuse people over the nature of who Jesus is, denying the fact that, that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. It was a denial of his humanity. It was a denial of his deity. And so John doesn't mince words here. He says, such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. And he says, when these folks come along, don't open your door and invite them into your home. Now you say, that might sound like a strange instruction to me. Uh, why does he tell them not to do that? Because you need to know that in the first century culture, hospitality was a very, very big deal. And so it was not uncommon for various leaders uh, who were traveling itinerant evangelists or teachers. It was not uncommon for believers to open up their homes and provide a place of lodging and to provide meals and other needs for those who were, were, were traveling teachers. 
And so here, what you have happening, you've got individuals who've sort of crept in unawares that Jude writes about, and, and, and they're taking advantage of Christian compassion and hospitality. They've sort of hijacked that so as to make themselves rich and fat. And they're gaining followers to their cause because they're smooth talkers. And John is saying to his spiritual children, don't open up your life. Don't open up your heart. Don't open up your home to those who would deny the truth that you know. And so he's saying your love needs to be tempered with wisdom and discernment. Be on guard against these false ideas that are at war against the truth. And so John's concern here is to guard the truth. He's not about to adapt it or water it down so as to accommodate these heretical views that were being spread by various traveling teachers. So once more, he's saying truth is absolute. Truth is defined. Truth is objective. And man, I'm telling you, this is so controversial in our times with with all of these postmodern ideas that advocate truth is merely a matter of preference. Who are you Christians to tell me that I'm, I'm in the wrong? Who are you to speak with any authority? But in fact, that's what we do when we declare the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not merely giving people the suggestion that Jesus can save unless they can find someone else who can do a better job of it. No, we're to unashamedly, compassionately, but clearly declare Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, my time is gone, but let me just give you this principle here before we close. And all of this is just really by, in, by means of introduction anyway. So one closing thought. Now think about this. In a culture where truth is increasingly relative, Followers of Jesus must be absolutely clear. Now, folks, we shouldn't expect the world to get this right. But I do expect the church and those who claim to be the followers of Jesus Christ to get this right. By the grace of God, the help of the Holy Spirit, because the church is the pillar and ground of all truth. And I can't help but think that sometimes our worship services and our small groups sort of spiral into gripe sessions whereby all we do is curse the darkness around us. But we never do anything to be proactive in speaking truth and shining light into that darkness which surrounds us. Because that's the very thing that God's called the church to do. With divine compassion produced inwardly in my heart through the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, we're to simply take the truth to our loved ones and take the truth to our neighbors. You know, this emphasis, love for the city. I love it. But it's not just simply love that we want to show the city. We want to speak truth to our city too, don't we? All within this atmosphere of Christian compassion that when we're insulted, we don't return insult with insult. When we're opposed, we don't have to get defensive and ugly. If there's a need, what do we do? We try to meet the need in Jesus' name. Why? Because truth has changed us. The gospel 
has changed us. Jesus has made us new. And so then our witness can be one that's born from a heart of integrity. Whereby we have really good news to tell the world around us. Jesus can change. He changed me. I was in bondage to my sin. I was in the dark. Couldn't make sense of life. But it was Jesus Christ and his truth. He came and opened up my blinded eyes. He's the one who's given meaning and purpose now to my life. I've experienced grace and mercy and peace with God all through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ for me. And the good news of the gospel is, doesn't matter who you are or where you've been in life, you can experience this as well. And so we have a real opportunity, don't we? This cultural moment in which we live, you know, I think sometimes we think, well, if we could just go back to the first century church, man, they had, every, they had no problems. They had it all together. You know, we always look back on the past with rose-colored glasses, don't we? But the fact is, in every generation, truth has always come under attack by the evil one. In every generation. So the first century, 21st century, truth's still under attack by the evil one, but the truth remains, doesn't it? What's below the waterline of your life by way of ballast? If the waters are getting choppy and the winds are getting more fierce, do you have some weight there beneath the surface to provide ballast to keep your vessel from capsizing? amid the cultural current. I pray that you do, but if not, listen, let me tell you who truth is because it's not simply a proposition. It's a person, Amen. and his name is Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? With heads bowed, with eyes closed. How important is the truth in your life and your experience as a Christian man or a woman? How much attention do you give the voice of God's Spirit in the pages of His Word each day in your life? Because you need such weight, such counterweight. Because the fact is, somebody's going to be speaking into my life and your life and telling me what to believe and what not to believe. And somebody's going to be speaking into the lives of our teenagers and our children, telling them what to believe and what not to believe. And it's by the providence of God that you and I were born when we were born and live where we live. And we've got great opportunity to speak truth within the context of Christian compassion and love, both to the next generation. In fact, the psalmist says one generation needs to declare to the next the ways of our God. We've got a responsibility here to be diligent, to pass the faith along. And oh, let's get serious about it, folks. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior this morning, listen, truth is a person. God came to us in the person of his son and lived a perfect, sinless life and yet went to the cross and suffered and died for my sin and your sin. And just as we sang about earlier, 
He didn't stay dead, but God raised him from the dead on the third day. And that fact has, it really has put the whole world into a corner when it comes to truth and authority. And Jesus says, I am Lord. Is he Lord in your life? If not, bow the knee to him this morning, my friend. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Lord, for the rock-solid bedrock of the gospel in which we find our hope. And Lord, like tiny vessels that are being tossed about the choppy waters of our times, Lord, may we not put more weight into that which is above the surface and what the boat looks like and how shiny it is. But God, may we understand that we need the ballast of truth. The ballast of truth and oh, how our children need it. Our grandchildren need it. And God, may we be your people and salt and light. Lord, both here in our city and all points beyond. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.